welcome you to Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. For those of you that I don't know, um, I'm Frank Wong. I'm uh, the assistant pastor here. If you're new, please do stick around. Don't, uh, don't run out the door real quick. We'd love to get the chance to, to greet you, uh, to get to know you a little bit better, um, and to just uh, welcome you to our church. Uh, please do pull out your uh, bulletin insert. We have a lot of verses this morning in all different places in the Bible, so you will need your bulletin insert, um, the, the, uh, the sermon outline to sort of follow along. If you would like to, you can put your fingers in Matthew 28, Luke 24, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 2. So if you want to like put four fingers into your Bible, by all means, please do that, uh, or you can follow along in your bulletin insert. Um, there are plenty of inserts in the back uh, if uh, you don't have one. So to get everyone on the same page this morning, uh, we've just finished like 11 months in the book of Jeremiah, and this morning we're starting a three-week series on the mission of the church. And we're doing this series now because the church appears to be in a season of re-examination, evaluation, and planning. If you recall, we made some changes uh, about this time last year. Uh, we made some changes to the way that we sort of schedule our Bible studies and our community groups. We also told you about sort of a big review of our programs. Uh, we were concerned about sort of over-programming and being burned out and burning all of you out. Uh, and so as we rolled those changes out, um, the session and the pastors went to all the community groups uh, to listen to you all that would have been about October or November last year. We just wanted to hear feedback on how the changes went um, and also take the opportunity to listen to concerns, questions, things you were appreciative of, stuff like that. And for several reasons that aren't actually sufficient, uh, we failed to get back to you on what we had learned from those listening sessions. So uh, sorry about that. Um, you know. Please uh, receive that apology from the session and from the pastors. Uh, we did not mean to do that, and uh, we will try to do better in the future. Um, and just so that you know, um, we have been listening to you. That all of those, that information didn't just sort of go into a black hole and just disappear. Um, the session has been working sort of extra hard. We've been meeting for uh, extra meetings to sort of try to talk through your comments um, and working through to establish short-term and long-term goals for the church. And as we sort of work through all these things, it occurred to the pastors and the session that it would probably be good for us to uh, look together as both a session and a congregation at what the Bible has to say about what our mission is, and hence this sermon series on the mission of the Bible. So this morning, we're sort of taking a 30,000-foot view on what the, the mission of the church is. And next week, uh, Dr. Uh, Dave Dorst, he's around here somewhere, um, will be talking to us about the sort of outward mission of the church. And in two weeks, Dr. Dave will be talking to us about the upward mission of the church. So let's turn uh, to the word of the Lord this morning. Um, but before we jump in, uh, let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning in need of wisdom and of grace. Uh, we always come 
to every passage of your word with our own interpretations and ideas of what it means, but we ask for unity when it comes to the mission of the church. We desire to be one body with many members, each doing what you have called us to do. But we ask that when we come together that we would be united in Christ for the common purpose to which you have called us. And so we would uh, hear your desire uh, for your church from your word, we pray. Um, We ask that you would be with us now. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, um, I want to start with a movie because I love movies, right? Um, So Mission Impossible, lots uh, lots of fun movies. Like, not necessarily the best movies, but still fun. Um, And I love these movies because they're absolutely ridiculous. You've got a crazy situation, outlandish gadgets, uh, unreasonably fortuitous movie movie timing as well, um, and over-the-top action, right? The stunts are crazy. But the most recognizable feature of Mission Impossible, besides Tom Cruise, of course, is probably the way in which they deliver the mission. Um you sort of have this, you have Tom Cruise, who is Ethan Hunt, and he puts on or enters some sort of high-tech briefing equipment disguised as a phone booth or a uh, pair of sunglasses or whatever, or even like those one of those disposable cameras that you have to wind every time. Kids that are like under the age of 17 have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, But it always sort of goes the same way. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to do this ridiculous mission, like penetrating the archive room of the Kremlin or something like that, uh, to save time, we've already chosen your team for you, and off he goes, doing something outrageous. And as we sort of talk through the mission of the church, it's important to, that, to note that a mission always has two components. The first one is obvious. There's a task to complete or accomplish. The second one is actually also obvious too, but we don't really always think about it. With any mission, uh, there's not only the task, but also who exactly is supposed to accomplish it. We often make assumptions about who is, uh, is supposed to do the mission. And so in the Mission Impossible movies, we often just assume that it's Tom Cruise's character uh, that has to accomplish this mission. But it's not. It's his team's mission. The team has to accomplish the task. The U's, all the U's, the, in your mission, should you choose to accept it, are actually plural. And that's important, not only because Tom Cruise's character can't do it alone, but also because he now can operate as a team member instead of feeling sort of the total weight of completing the mission upon his shoulders alone. And so he has to understand his role within the team to accomplish their corporate goals. And and the mission of the church is really the same way. It has two components to it, the task and who's being sent to accomplish said task. And here's a sort of sneak preview of my second point. Just as Tom Cruise must understand the difference between his team's goals and his own individual role within that team, we too need to make a distinction between the church's goals as a corporate body or institution and a Christian person's individual role within that church so that we have correct expectations and approaches to what the church does. And so we're going to order our thoughts around those two components. 
First, we're gonna look at what we're to accomplish, sort of what the mission is. And then we'll look, then we'll look at whose mission it is. And after we look at those two things, hopefully we'll have some practical applications about how we can tackle the mission of the church. So first, what's the mission? What are we to do? What is the task the Lord God is assigning to us to accomplish? And for most of us, our first thought is to turn to the Great Commission found in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's definitely a command to go with a, a, a task. It sounds like a good place to start uh, when we are talking about the mission of the church. But the Great Commission isn't the only command that we've received. And even though I think that we'll end up coming back to the Great Commission um, as sort of the primary task of the church, I think it'll be worth asking why. Why is the Great Commission the Great Commission? So let's consider the Bible as a whole, um, sort of the whole sweep of all of Scripture. It's a grand story of God calling to himself a people, calling to himself a people. It started with creation uh, in the garden with Adam and Eve. And even when the fall happened, when his chosen people, his created chosen people, had rebelled against him, he continued to work so that he might redeem them and redeem for himself his own people. And we see that coming to fruition over the course of the Bible in the work, person and work of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And so, not surprisingly, God has done it. Um, he has accomplished that which he set out to do, namely save people from their sins by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for his glory alone. And that last alone, that last sola, gives us the purpose for our salvation. Why did God go through all the trouble for, of saving us from our sins, of sending his son to die on the cross when he would have been glorified, justified, and praised for simply just wiping us out. And the reason why is because he is more glorified in our salvation. Not just not, because not only is his justice highlighted, but also his grace. And so consider with me Isaiah 43:21. To my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. And there it is. That's the reason that we're saved. We are saved so that we might proclaim God's praise. The end goal is that the Lord makes for himself worshipers. I mean, think about the sort of question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we just finished about a year in Jeremiah where we saw just how bad God's people were and just how committed God was to them. And as I said last week, as we wrapped up our series in Jeremiah, it's all about God's justice and his grace. The whole Bible points to that reality. And we have been saved so that we can point to that reality as well. 
rejoicing and worshiping the Lord. Again, that's the mission, to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim God's justice and grace, and, to, and two, to make disciples, really to teach people how to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, leaving behind our idolatry and obeying his commands. And so we're back where we started, right? The Great Commission. But we don't find the Great Commission only in Matthew 28, which is why I told you to turn to Luke 24 and First uh, Peter uh, two, among other places. And as we look at sort of all these three passages together, we get a fuller picture of what we ought to be doing. In Matthew 28, we're called to make disciples of the nations, teaching them to obey all that the Lord has commanded. In Luke 24, 44 through 48, uh, it says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed, proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Did you catch that the gospel should be proclaimed? That we are all called to be witnesses of the gospel? And what do witnesses do? Witnesses tell people, tell others what they have seen. And then we can go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. There it is again, right? A people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so we see those words again, proclaiming, proclaiming, making disciples, sort of pop up over and over and over again. So what's included in proclaiming the gospel and making disciples? What does that actually mean? Well, let's take proclaiming the gospel first. Proclaiming the gospel certainly has aspects of evangelism in view, right? Uh, but it has other aspects of worship in view as well. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that when we, we proclaim the Lord's death, every time we eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord's Supper, when we sing, we are certainly proclaiming the gospel too. And as we humbly extend and receive grace, we image Christ and his gospel. And so we are proclaiming his gospel even, uh, even sort of as we interpersonally relate to each other. And in short, there are a ton of ways that we can proclaim the gospel. Some are more direct and overt, uh, and then others that are more indirect and less overt. And what about making disciples? What does that mean? Well, there's certainly evangelism in view in this command as well. We're certainly supposed to make new disciples. That would be the sort of baptizing part of Matthew 28. As they come to faith, we are to give them the sacrament of baptism, which is an outward sign and seal of their faith in Christ. It is the mark of the new covenant upon this sort of new believer. But we're also supposed to be teaching them. Remember Matthew 28, 20, we're told to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so Christian education is a vital part of the mission. We're not just to make new converts and be done with them as if our sort of mission were over. 
No, we're to train them, to teach them, to build them up to maturity. Listen to Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 16. And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the statue of the uh, fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so part of making disciple is continually growing, uh, and growing up in the faith that we might become more secure in it. The danger is that we're not fully grounded or rooted in this great gospel that we proclaim that we would be a, like a flag in the wind of human cunning, blowing here and there depending on what we heard last. And hence, what the mission, the, hence we get a mission directive in Colossians 2, uh, verse 6 and 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in, him, uh, built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And so the desire is not only that you who do not believe come to the Lord, but also you who does believe be deeply rooted in this faith. And there are a million different ways to grow in the faith, a million different ways to pursue discipleship. And so let's summarize. We are to proclaim the gospel of Christ and to make disciples of Christ. Those two things are the main mission of the church. There are, but there are also a multiple, multitude of ways to sort of accomplish those things, those two things. So we generally know what to do, but we still have an issue of having so many options that fit under the umbrella of sort of proclaiming the gospel and making disciples that we just, how do we choose? And as with uh, sort of every group, we have more opinions about how we ought to do it than we probably have people, right? And so before we get into sort of how we can narrow down those options in a sort of biblical way, I think it'll help us immensely to tackle the question of who's being sent first, okay? If we have clear categories of who's doing what, we'll have another sort of set of criteria to make wise decisions. And so whose mission is it? Whose mission is it? And our expected answer is, well, the church, Frank. We've been talking about the mission of the church. It's the church. But what do we mean by the church? Do we mean that the sort of the church as a group of individuals? If we take it to mean that, then every one of us would have the mission to proclaim the gospel and to make disciples. Okay? Or do we mean the church as a united body of believers that functions sort of as an institution? administrating the sacraments, discipline, and preaching the word. If we take it to mean that, then sort of the primary overriding focus will be upon proclaiming the gospel and making disciples, more so than any other thing that we could possibly do. And of course, the answer to this question is yes, right? 
both. We clearly mean both. And how these ministry roles work together is most clearly seen in the last two uh, verses of the passage in Ephesians that we've already looked at, Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up, up in love. Do you see both the unity of the body and the individuality of every part doing what it is uniquely made to do? And so both the church and the individual are called to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. Well, sort of not really earth-shattering. You're like, Frank, come on. That makes sense. But I think while we mean both, it's useful and important to maintain the distinction between the call to mission for the individual Christian and the call to mission for the church as a corporate body. And why is that? Well, quite simply, because the whole body is different from each individual part. There are things that each part is called to do that the body may not be called to do because they are part-specific. So, for instance, if I'm running a race, the whole body is called to win, right? whole body is called to dominate because, you know, we're super competitive here. <laughs> but every part needs to do its specific role. It'd be crazy it, for the whole body to do, the, like, the job of the lungs, right? Just imagine what that would be like if my feet are like, man, lungs, you're doing such a great job giving the whole body oxygen. I'm so jealous. I want to be lungs, too. I'm tired of this sort of weight-bearing stuff and the pushing off against the ground. It's so lame. I'm just going to sort of expand and contract as lungs do. It's going to be great. How's that going to go? Not great. I'm just going to be in a heap on the ground screaming as my, my uh, feet go like this, right? It's just not going to work out well. But, you know, but it's also a little counterintuitive as we sort of think about the church using the body and parts metaphor. Because actually, it seems like the, church, uh, the church's sort of mission seems to be a little bit narrower um, and more specialized than the whole set of commands given to individual believers. So it's a little counterintuitive. It actually, the body sort of, in that sort of body part illustration, the whole body actually has a narrower uh, sort of specialization than um, each individual part has. And how, how is that? Well, individuals, each individual Christian, all of you, have a myriad of calls and missions in your lives. Consider just a few of the examples that are like individual specific and not corporate. Calls concerning spouses and parents, right, to honor them. It's really hard for the whole church to honor your specific parents or how you, how you relate to your wife or your, your husband. Like the whole church is not your husband or your wife, right? It's very part specific. What about concerning the call to make families, to be fruitful and multiply, which is sort of the cultural mandate way back in Genesis? What about concerning your relationship to the civil magistrates and your citizenship responsibilities, right? We just prayed for our, our, our country. There are, those are individual, individual responsibilities that as a corporate body, we might not necessarily be called to do as a corporate body, right? And even the way in which you do all of these different things is individual. 
Consider Micah 6.8, that famous verse. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And sure, the church can do that, but that is an individual call. And it appears to me that the church as a corporate body has a unique, specific, and focused call to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. And that idea that the church has a unique and specific call also makes sense too. When we come together, we don't just come together for any old reason, for just about for just anything. We come together for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel to ourselves and to the world. We engage in discipleship, pointing each other to the truths of the, of the scriptures so that we might better proclaim the gospel to ourselves and to others. That's why we come together. The church really only exists because of the gospel. It only exists to build itself up in love so that we might declare the Lord's praise. Remember Isaiah 43? That's why the Lord made for himself a people. He didn't make, himself, make for himself a people for that people to then engage in trade policy talks. That's not why he, he won for himself a people. He didn't make for himself he didn't make for himself a people even to sort of sway the political atmosphere towards something that we think is more Christian. Rather, he made for himself a people that they might proclaim him and make passionate disciples of him. So now that we have an idea of what the sort of broad goals and a sense of what the church corporately is to do, what wisdom can we glean from our time together? And four things, four practical applications. Um, the first is an invigorating potential. And this is what I love to talk about. You see, the directive to the church as a corporate body gives us a picture of what we can be, what we can be as a church. Remember, we have Christ with us always to the end of the age. And so we're empowered and we're emboldened. Why? Because we have Christ with us. We have literally God Almighty dwelling within us. It's one of the great truths of the gospel is that we have Christ himself. And because we have Christ, because we have God Almighty with us, we can be a lean, mean, gates of hell smashing, destroying, storming, discipleship making machine. Okay? That's what we can be. That's the picture that we get of the church. It's not a sort of circle the wagons, defensive posture like Keep the world at bay, church. Matthew 16, 18 tells us that we are a prevailing church. We are enabled and empowered by the Spirit with boldness to kick in the gates of hell and watch as Jesus wins for himself a people more numerous than the sand on the seashore in fulfillment of his covenant promise. And that is a great thing to think about. I mean, that, that thought that we have such a gospel such a powerful gospel is invigorating. It, it, it gives us life. It gives us passion. And the only way that we can possibly hope to achieve that picture is by having a gospel engine, 
right? Please hear me when I say that we're not looking to add more, to, more things to your plate to your over, already overflowing, super busy lives. I'm not telling you to like, okay, so you've got all of your things that you have to do at home, so now you have to go and proclaim the gospel and make more disciples. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we want you to be using what you already do and to infuse it with a sort of gospel focus. For instance, Dave Silvernail was a kid's baseball coach for many years. And he sought to view his time coaching kids and dealing with their parents through a gospel lens. And he was able to recognize that he had the opportunity through that to proclaim the gospel and make disciples, which is how one of our deacons, who was already up here, and who led our worship this morning, that's how he came to come to Potomac Hills and through the ministry of Potomac Hills came to Christ. Do you see sort of that we can invade our sort of mundane lives with the gospel and that it can change the very way in which that we approach people and approach the sort of things that we do and that in fact, just talking to just people, it can set them on the road towards life and life in abundance. And so we want the gospel to be overflowing in our hearts and our minds. Does the fact that you are a huge sinner, like a big, fat, terrible sinner, justly deserving of wrath and eternal damnation, but because Jesus died on the cross in your place, you get grace and eternal life, does that fact that you have the status of an heir, of a child of God, does that fact, when you deserve just the complete opposite, does it just leave you awestruck? Does it never fail to make your jaw drop inwardly, to fill you with joy that is almost inexpressible? Because that's what the gospel does, right? I think a lot of the problem that we have is that we've lost the wonder of the gospel. I tell this to my students all the time. How big is your gospel? Because if it's so big that it overflows who you are, then you won't be able to help but talk about it, but be passionate about it, to look for opportunities to slip it into conversation. I mean, we saw that on the missions trip, right? About like things that the students are passionate about specifically the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Literally every single day on every trip, on every car ride, it was like Iron Man, this, Captain America, that. Why? Because they were passionate. They took every opportunity to fit it into conversation. And the gospel ought to be that way too. It blows our mind what the Lord has done for us. Okay? And so, you know, as we sort of do these things, we want it to be all about the gospel. But even with these sort of broad goals and guiding principles about what individuals and the corporate body is supposed to do, there are still hard choices to be made, right, of what we can or can't do or what we will or will not do. And the church simply cannot do every good or even great thing. We have finite resources of time, energy, money, people, all of that. And so we end up having to exercise wisdom in our decision-making to find the best, godliest thing. Okay, but wisdom requires priorities and decisions, and somebody has to make those decisions. And in the Presbyterian form of church government, that's the session, which is our elders. 
And if that's the case, remember back when I said that if I asked all of you for your opinions of how we should ought to do this, we'd probably get as many or if not more opinions as we have people? This means, because we all have different views of how we ought to do this, this means that chances are you're not going to agree with everything that we do, with everything that it's decided. But hopefully there will be something that you can, uh, you can get behind. But chances are you won't agree with everything. But what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us that at least some aspects of the church were like, I don't know if we should be doing that, or I don't know if we should be doing that instead of doing this other thing that I think we ought to be doing. And so it means that we are called to a godly submission. We are called to not silence. So we're, I'm not telling you guys to like just shut up and listen to the, the, the elders. I'm not telling you to do that. We want to hear from you, especially if you don't agree. But it is in your membership vows when you join the church to submit to the government and discipline of the church. And when we ordain our ruling elders, as we just did for Ron Clifton, you as a congregation vow to yield to him all that honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord to which, is, which his office, according to the word of God and the constitution of this church, entitles him. I literally lifted that out of our vows that you guys took. And unfortunately, submission is not, rarely fun uh, because it generally means we're doing something that we don't think we ought to be doing or have a preference for something else. But in fact, it's good for us. It's sanctifying for us to not always get our way. It's good because there's a gospel purpose in ordering the church this way, where we have to submit, especially when it's not our preference to. You see, when we submit to the church, when we submit to the ordained leadership um, as Christ's under shepherds, we display Christ and what he has done in his life to those around us and to ourselves. We proclaim Christ's submission to the Father in the garden, in fact, where he, laid, where he laid down his preferences in obedience to the Father. But most directly, we remind ourselves that what the church does as a body is not about me. It's primarily about God, his gospel, and his work. And so submission leads to humility which is always something as sort of Metro DC proudful people need to work on. That's always something we need to work on. So let me illustrate this for you guys. At my last church, there was a question before the session that greatly impacted the youth group of which I was the director. Um, and because I was the director, they asked for my recommendation on, at the time of what to do. And so I gave it to them and I gave it to them in what I thought was a sort of convincing argument. And I thought it was airtight. And then they ended up deciding to do the exact opposite of what I had recommended. That was hard, <laughs> okay? That was hard for me to swallow. Because did I agree with their decision? Absolutely not, obviously not. But it was the decision of the session. And I had to submit because that was part of my membership vow, and they were also my boss, and so I couldn't just tell them to be like, uh, no, okay? And I submitted to the session for the sake of being faithful not only to those membership vows, 
but also for the unity of the church. Because I'll tell you, the youth group talked a lot about that decision, and they were definitely against it. And as, a session, as sort of the session's designated person to, to care for them, what did I have to do? I had to defend their decision and to be united with the session in what they said, even though it wasn't my preference. And it was my job to get everybody on board as best as I could to maintain the unity of the church. And let me tell you, it was one of the greatest exercises that I've ever had to do. Definitely not my preference, but it certainly humbled me and reminded me that this ministry of mine that I thought was mine is not in fact mine at all. It's the Lord's. It's not about me. It's not about what I want. It's about what the Lord wants. And how can I, pro how can I proclaim his grace, his mercy in every facet? And remember, that's the point of grace, right? That we are giving people unmerited, we think unmerited, favor. And so when you don't agree with us, we ask that you would give us grace. That even though you think we might not deserve it, that you would, in fact, show Christ to us by giving us grace. And so we can be passionate and humble as we work our way through how we're going to accomplish this mission. But these are all good ideas and ways in which we can do these things, but we still haven't come to a, a, a sort of a rubric or criteria, criteria to actually decide things. And so let's land the plane. Let's how do we go about deciding what to do and what not to do? And so the best I can give you is a rule of thumb because every context is different, every decision is different, and we're gonna have to exercise wisdom, right? And so the rule of thumb is this. In general, the church should focus its efforts on things that engage more directly with proclaiming the gospel and making disciples than not. Earth-shattering, right? Surprise. Your priority is your priority, okay? That we want to keep the main things the main thing. And so, for instance, we decided to move our partnership with uh, Loud and Hunger Relief, which is sort of a local food bank, over to Tree of Life Ministries. And the reason why is because Loud and Hunger Relief became completely secular without a clear evangelistic and discipleship component to it. Tree of Life is the complete opposite. They are absolutely committed to proclaiming Christ and pointing people to the church for discipleship as they serve and meet people's needs. And also hear this. Okay, even as I say that we ought to be doing things, focusing on things that more directly proclaim the gospel and make disciples, also hear that the church can and should do things that are sort of indirectly related to the mission. Okay, so sometimes things like fellowship lunches and picnics refresh us and make us better and more effective witnesses for the gospel. And so those are probably good and wise things for the church to devote some of its resources to. Okay, so don't, tell, don't, don't get me wrong. I love our picnics. I love our fellowship events. They are important and necessary for the life of the church. And they're good for good just sort of stewardship in the life of the church. And, you know, there are social justice efforts that the church can support as well, such as feeding the hungry, caring for the homeless, freeing the enslaved, um, helping the sojourner, all of that. 
right? Those are good and noble things that the church can do to bless the world. But it's best to understand that while we're called to take care of the poor and the needy and to champion the oppressed, there are also other organizations that do that too. And the reason that the church could, should, or would do these things would be to open the door for us to proclaim the gospel and to make disciples. And so doing these good social justice things are really just a means towards an end. Hence, you know, why we moved our partnership to Tree of Life. And so it comes down to this. We want to keep the main things the main things. We are given a charge to proclaim the gospel and make disciples, and so much of how we evaluate what we can do for, uh, uh, sorry, so much of how we evaluate what we can do um, for what we will do will be driven by that primary mission and not by secondary good things. And I think part of that will also be an emphasis on local mission work where we can actually do the proclaiming and discipling ourselves in sort of, instead of outsourcing it to others. We already do this in our Bible studies, our community groups, and Sunday school classes. And I think this should also be true of our outreach and evangelism. But don't get me wrong again. Supporting our foreign missionaries is absolutely mission critical, right? It's absolutely on mission for the kingdom. And the supplice here are on furlough from their overseas mission work, and we love them. We've supported them for many, many years. And we love to see the work that they do for the kingdom. And we see the work that they do as part of what we do here. And remember, what are they doing? They are proclaiming the gospel and making disciples where God has placed them. And that's why we're supporting them, to do there what we are doing here. Okay. And even short-term mission trips, like our trip to the Appalachian Mountains of North Carolina, are important for us to do too. They show us how mercy ministry opens doors to proclaiming the gospel. Just a month ago, a big team of us, 24 of us, went down, and we saw people have their homes repaired, and hundreds of families get food during a food drive. And because of those acts of mercy, those indirect sort of acts, the love of Christ was shown them. And we, were, we even got the chance to pray with them, which is sort of that direct aspect of the mission, to directly point them to Jesus Christ because what we did indirectly opened that door. And so while it's while partnering with missionaries and going on these trips that we catch a clearer vision of what life can be like back home. But I think that the majority of our resources should be spent proclaiming and discipling those that are around us in the church and in the community. And so we've had a lot of ground to cover this morning, a lot of scripture to pay attention to, um, a lot of theology to consider. So let me end with this prayer of my heart. Uh, I pray that whatever we choose to do uh, moving forward, that we would do so as I prayed at the beginning, that we would be united in our purpose to proclaim the gospel and to make disciples of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would rejoice as we exercise each of our unique gifts, 
for the building up of the body, and that we would have an eye towards storming the gates of hell to win for the Lord through the power of his Holy Spirit a people that would give him the praise that is due his name. That is my prayer. So let us turn in prayer to the Lord.